Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, The Church of Sacrifice. But first, your true crime headlines. The body of 18-year-old Linda Stolzfus, the young Amish woman who disappeared 10 months ago, was found this week and authorities say she was strangled and stabbed in the neck. The Lancaster County coroner used dental records to positively identify the body. Her cause of death was asphyxia from strangulation along with suffocation. The coroner said the stab wound was a contributing factor in her death. Stoltzfus was last seen on June 21, 2020, walking home from church in the bird-in-hand area. Her remains were found in a grave along railroad tracks behind a business where the man charged in her death had worked. 35-year-old Eusto Smoker was charged with homicide in December and is awaiting trial. Smoker was initially arrested in August and also faces charges of kidnapping and false imprisonment. Authorities have declined to say what exactly led them to the grave or whether Smoker had provided its location as part of a deal with prosecutors. He has pleaded not guilty. Mervyn Fisher, an uncle to Linda Stoltzfus, told PenLive that the family had held out hope that she would be found alive but had been preparing themselves for the worst. Fisher said, quote, The not knowing is a long, dark tunnel without an end. And when you find the remains, you have the end in sight. It brings closure. And when there's closure, the healing process can continue. King County has agreed to pay half a million dollars to settle a civil rights lawsuit filed by a man who spent two years in jail awaiting trial on homicide charges only to be acquitted by a jury. In a federal lawsuit filed in 2019, Rodney Wheeler insisted that he was targeted and prosecuted for a homicide that he, quote, did not commit and had no involvement with whatsoever. The lawsuit alleged King County Sheriff's detectives, quote, made false statements and omitted important facts that would have undermined their allegations. That Wheeler shot a man outside a Motel 6 in SeaTac following an argument in August 2016. Wheeler was arrested and charged with second-degree murder, second-degree assault, and for being a felon in possession of a handgun. Wheeler was booked into jail on $1 million bail, where he remained until a King County jury found him not guilty in January of 2019. The settlement came last week, three weeks after the judge found there was evidence to support Wheeler's claims of malicious prosecution. According to the Seattle Times, Judge Mary Alice Thieler found evidence that detectives cherry-picked evidence and included, quote, false and misleading statements in court documents, filed misleading or incomplete sworn statements to obtain a search warrant, and later, criminal charges against Wheeler, a violation of his due process and, quote, judicial deception. Sergeant Tim Mayer said that the magistrate's decision, quote, does not represent a finding that either party has proven any of the disputed facts. This does not mean that Mr. Wheeler 
was unfairly subjected to criminal trial. Tiffany Cartwright, Wheeler's lawyer, said her client had no comment on the settlement. A 14-year-old boy charged in the strangulation death of a six-year-old Northern Indiana girl told police that a, quote, shadowy man led him to kill her. The boy, whose name is being withheld due to his age, is accused of murder and child molestation in juvenile court in the death of Grace Ross. Grace was reported missing by her family the evening of March 12th. Her body was later found in a nearby wooded area. An autopsy found the cause of her death to be homicide by asphyxiation. That same day, the 14-year-old boy was taken into custody. Initially, the teenager told investigators that Grace followed him into the woods, and then he wandered around and lost track of her. Police said the boy then later referred to a, quote, shadowy man who controlled him and made him strangle the girl with his hands. Attorneys for the boy filed a motion to close public access to the documents, arguing that the high-profile nature of Grace's killing could introduce prejudice to their client's case. St. Joseph County Probate Court Magistrate Graham Polando wrote in Wednesday night's ruling that Indiana law is clear that juvenile court proceedings can be made public if the offense would be murder or a felony if committed by an adult. He also ruled that there was nothing in the law that precluded the office from releasing the investigative report. The prosecutor's office said in a statement Friday, quote, We conclude that the public's interest in information regarding the basis for this ongoing matter supports our release of this particular document in the case. Polando's ruling specifies that hearings in which psychiatrists or other mental health care professionals expect to testify will be closed. He also postponed a May 13th hearing to determine whether the boy's case will be moved to adult court. After the parties sought more time to analyze the results of the mental health evaluations. In Alabama, Three bodies were found inside a car that was partially submerged in Lake Eufaula along the Alabama-Georgia state line. On Monday, a passerby spotted a car in the water at a park in Eufaula. Police Chief Steve Watkins told news outlets that after they began working to remove the vehicle from the water, officials who checked the vehicle determined that three bodies were inside. The work stopped and local authorities contacted state investigators. Photos showed a blue sedan in the water near the shore. Watkins said the park includes ball fields, a beach, and a ramp that is often used to launch fishing boats. Police didn't immediately know the identities of the people. It was unclear how long the vehicle had been in the water or how the people died. But authorities said that a homicide investigation is underway. Those your true crime headlines. Up next, the Church of Sacrifice. But first, a quick break. Welcome back 
to Murder Minute. Clementine Barnabet was born in 1894 in St. Martinsville, Louisiana. Her parents were Raymond Barnabet and Nina Porter, and she had three brothers, one of them named Zephyrin. Little is known about Clementine's childhood, but growing up black in the Jim Crow South had its troubles. Her father, Raymond Barnabet, reportedly abused Clementine and her siblings as well. And in 1909, when Clementine was 15 years old, the Barnabets moved to Lafayette, Louisiana. It was there, two years later, that Raymond Barnabet, 17-year-old Clementine, and her brother, Zephyrin, started their own church, a cult called the Church of Sacrifice. Members of Barnabet's new religion believed that killing sinners and dismembering them would bring them eternal life. Between 1911 and 1912, wrote Vance McLaughlin in The Strange Case of Clementine Barnabet. In towns along the Southern Pacific Railroad line, running through Louisiana and Texas, a minimum of 12 African-American families were murdered in their homes. All the murders occurred at night, and an axe was used to fracture the skulls of the victims. The first murder, on February 1, 1911, was of Walter J. Byers, his wife, and their six-year-old son. Their bodies were found three days later, bludgeoned to death while they slept. It appeared to investigators that the killer had entered through a rear window. A bucket of blood was found in the corner, and a bloody axe at the head of the bed. On February 25th, the bodies of the Andrus family were found. Alexander Andrus, his wife Mimi, and their two children, three-year-old Joaquim and 11-month-old Agnes, all were found dead in their blood-drenched beds in Lafayette. Like the buyers, the murder weapon and axe was found discarded on the floor, and nothing from the home had been stolen. The Lafayette advertiser reported, quote, The man and wife and boy had been brained with an axe while sleeping in the bed, and then the baby, lying in its cradle, was struck and its head crushed. The man and woman were taken up by the murderer and placed on their knees beside the bed, the woman's arm over the man's shoulder, as if in the attitude of prayer. The baby was then placed beside the mother on the bed. Then the murderer escaped through the kitchen door, where he had entered. The crime, it is thought, was committed after midnight, as an examination by Dr. Clark disclosed some slight warmth in the bodies. A coroner's jury was held, which, for want of evidence, brought in a verdict of death by unknown party. Sheriff Lacoste and the officers suspected an escaped lunatic from Pineville by the name of Garson Godfrey. 
they learned from the mother, whom they arrested, that Godfrey was at Maurice. Deputy Peck and Officer Edwin Campbell went out and got him, but were unable to connect him with the crime as parties at Maurice testified to his having been there all the time. They brought him back and placed him in jail to return to the asylum. Police believed that the crimes were so similar that both must have been, quote, the work of the same terrible monster. Raymond Barnabet, who had a reputation for his violent temper and a long criminal record, was arrested two days later on suspicion of murdering the Andrus family. But like the escaped lunatic, he was soon released for lack of evidence. A month later, in San Antonio, Texas, over 400 miles west of Lafayette, the Cassaway family was found murdered in their home. Alfred Cassaway, his wife Elizabeth, and their three children were the victims. Alfred's body was found in his bed, with his daughter Louise at his feet. Both of the backs of their heads had been crushed. Elizabeth was on the bed with her daughter Josie, lying across her feet with her brains exposed. Their five-month-old baby boy, Carlisle, was reportedly killed in his mother's arms. Like the other murders, the axe was found at the scene, and nothing of value had been taken from the house. After the murder of the Cassaways, Raymond Barnabet was re-arrested in July of 1911. After his mistress told police that Barnabet had confessed to the murders during an argument with her. At his trial on October 19, 1911, Raymond did not take the stand. But throughout the trial, he could be heard muttering, Goodbye, and Mofutu, I am gone, loud enough for the jury to hear. Raymond Barnabet's mistress and his children testified against him as witnesses for the prosecution, though some of their stories contradicted each other. Clementine testified that her father arrived home the night of the Andrus murders with his blue shirt covered in blood and brains. She told the court that her father bragged that he killed a whole family that night and instructed Clementine to wash the blood out of his clothes, which she did. Clementine's brother, Zeperin, confirmed the bloody clothes and told the court that their father boasted that he, quote, killed the whole damn Andrus family. Raymond's mistress noted that he had threatened to kill her a month earlier, and all testified that they feared for their life if Raymond Barnabet was not found guilty. One witness called by the defense, a neighbor whose family occupied half of the house where the Barnabets lived, disputed their testimonies. Despite this, on October 24, 1911, the jury found Raymond Barnabet guilty, and he was sentenced to hang. 
Following his conviction, Raymond Barnabet's attorneys successfully filed for an appeal, but he remained in custody pending a new trial because he was too poor to post bond. But five weeks later, while Raymond Barnabet, the axe murderer, sat in jail, another family was murdered. On November 27, 1911, Norbert Randall, his wife Azima, three of their children and a nephew aged two to eight were found murdered in their beds. The Lafayette Advertiser wrote, quote, Yesterday morning, the town was again shocked by the discovery of the murder of an entire Negro family Sunday night. The victims were Norbert Randall, his wife and three children and nephew. They occupied a three-room house in Mills. The discovery of the murder was made by the oldest child of the Randall family, a girl about 10, who had spent the night at her uncle's house. She found the kitchen door open and upon entering saw her parents and the children in bed murdered. She gave the alarm and officers at once went to the scene of the murder and made every investigation possible. A considerable rain was falling, which removed any outside trace of the criminal. Inside, nothing seemed to have been disturbed. The murder was committed with an axe, which was found in the house, washed off. One child's bloody footprint was found near the bed, and it was believed that the victim was thrown back onto the bed before being killed with the axe. Additionally, unlike the other murders, Norbert Randall had been shot in the head. Following the Randall family murders, police decided to take a closer look at the other members of the Barnabet family. Clementine was living just a few blocks away where she worked as a housekeeper and there was blood on the latch of the home's rear gate. When police searched Clementine's room, they discovered a dress, quote, saturated with blood and covered with human brains. When questioned, 18-year-old Clementine simply laughed and insisted she had no idea how those clothes got into her room. Her brother, Zephyrin, provided an alibi for the night of the murders, but Clementine had none. Clementine Barnabet was arrested and jailed. But the axe murders still didn't stop. In January of 1912, Marie Warner and her three children were murdered. Then, Felix Broussard, his wife and their three young children. Written on the Broussard's wall was a quote from Psalms. When he maketh inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. It was signed, Human Five. By now, police believed that the murders were the work of a group of killers, and the press dubbed them the Human Five Gang. The African-American community was in a state of panic. The New York Times wrote, quote, The murders spread terror among the Negroes in Louisiana and Texas, 
In many communities, Negroes would not stir from their homes at night, and the doors of their cabins that never before had known a lock were barred. On March 1st, a hoodoo man, unconnected to the murders, was killed while resisting arrest at Lake Charles. He had been using the fear in the community to sell charms of protection and offered to wire homes to protect them from evil. On March 14th, the El Paso Gazette ran the headline, quote, Voodoo's Horrors Break Out Again. The article focused on the observation that families of five had been targeted and that the killing spree appeared to be a series of sacrifices of five families of five. Three days after the article ran, a family of four was killed in Beaumont, Texas. Hattie Dove and her three children. Hattie and her son Ernest were found in bed in the front room. Ernest was hit with the blade of the axe. Hattie was bludgeoned with the blunt end. One axe blow had missed and hit the wall. After murdering the Dove family, the killer wiped his bloody hands with a cloth and left the cloth and the axe on the floor. A week later, Ellen Monroe and her four children met the same fate. The Lafayette advertiser wrote, quote, The fright which has overtaken the Negroes in the Louisiana towns following the killings there has been accentuated here, and the killing here has again stirred all southwest Louisiana with mystery and fear of the return of the fiend who wields an axe with a viciousness no less horrible than it is unexpected and unwarranted. Thousands upon thousands of Negroes filed past the four dead Negroes lying in the morgue yesterday and sent fervent supplications to heaven to be spared a visitation of this awful vengeance upon themselves. Many of them moaned that the Lord had deserted them, and some of them were heard to murmur that a curse had fallen upon the race. Despite sitting in jail at the time of these murders, Clementine Barnabet confessed her involvement. On April 1, 1912, Clementine told police that she was the high priestess of the Church of Sacrifice and that she was responsible for at least 35 murders between 1911 and 1912, 17 of which she had carried out with her own two hands. These included four members of the Randall family, four members of the Andrus family, a family of five in Rain, and a family of four at Crawley. Clementine said that four other cult members were involved, two men and two women, but refused to name them. At rain, she said, they drew straws, and she was chosen to wield the axe while the others watched. After killing the two adults, she said, quote, It was an easy matter to get rid of the two small children. We thought it was better to kill them and leave them orphans, as they would suffer. Of the Andrus family, Clementine said, quote, We took the man and woman, 
placed them in a kneeling position beside the bed, and left the house. I was one of the first to aid the relatives the next day and helped prepare the bodies for burial. When asked if victims were chosen for any particular reason, Clementine answered no. These families were not selected particularly, she said. We started out not knowing who the victims would be. Clementine said that the murders mostly occurred on Sunday nights while the victims were sleeping. We weren't afraid of being arrested, Clementine told police, because I carried a voodoo which protected us from punishment. On April 2nd, the New York Times wrote, quote, Clementine Barnabet, a half-blood Negro woman, told a story here today that the police authorities say would explain the killing of 20 Negroes in southwest Louisiana, and which, if true, would fix the guilt for 15 other night assassinations of Negroes in Louisiana and Texas. According to the woman's story, she led a Negro cult, the members of which performed the rites of human sacrifice. The woman declared she killed 17 of the victims with her own hands. The police say the woman told her story of wholesale slaughter with no apparent appreciation that the taking of human life was a crime. The woman said the cult known as the Church of the Sacrifice has for its creed the belief that by life sacrifice alone may a person gain immortality. Before engaging in any of these crimes, the Barnabet woman armed herself with a hoodoo which she got from a preacher and which she and other members of her band were assured would protect them from the law. The authorities believed that the woman and her companions were degenerates and that their weakened brains were affected by the exhortations that they had heard in the Church of Sacrifice. On April 5, 1912, the Lafayette Advertiser printed Clementine's full confession, but added at the end, quote, Clementine's confession has been received with varying shades of belief, owing to the positive way she swore in the trial of her father and the misleading information she has given as to her accomplices. She scandalized the press, wrote author James Hoare, stirring up a gumbo of moral panic in a state where civil war and slavery remained a living memory. Everything about Clementine Barnabet represented a collision, even a perversion, of cultures in the eyes of white Louisiana. From her mangled Creole French to her mangled beliefs, a tabloid baiting blend of voodoo, itself a blend of Catholicism and West African tribal rites, and evangelical Christianity. In October of 1912, after psychiatric exams determined that she was not insane, Clementine Barnabet's trial began. While District Attorney Howard E. Bruner theorized that some of the murders were likely copycat crimes, he believed that Clementine Barnabet was a, quote, 
moral pervert who was guilty of everything she confessed to. From her account, which was, quote, vile and repulsive, it was gleaned that Clementine was, quote, an unnatural moral pervert, who at times had strong desires to fondle people, and that when she had killed her victims, indulged in her passions to her heart's content. Sheriff Lacoste believed a total of 35 African Americans in Louisiana and Texas had been murdered. He said, quote, We expect to show that the blood found on the bundle of women's clothes the morning after the murder of the Randall family here last fall was human blood and identical with the blood found on the bedclothes of the Randalls. This will be proven by a chemical analysis provided by Dr. Metz, city chemist of New Orleans. Lacoste added, quote, Clementine Barnabet is rational, and I believe it is true, except as to the details given with the purpose of confusing officers as to her accomplices. At trial, Clementine Barnabet's attorneys pleaded religious insanity. Clementine told the court, quote, I am the woman of the sacrifice sect. I killed them all, men, women, and babies. And I hugged the dead bodies to my heart. But I am not guilty of murder. Despite her attorney's objections, Clementine wanted her confession entered into the trial record. She believed that if she were to be executed, an angel in a chariot of fire would save her life. On October 25, 1912, Clementine Barnabet was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison at the age of 19. The following year, on July 31, 1913, Clementine attempted to escape from prison, but failed. Nine years into her sentence, Clementine reportedly underwent a procedure which, quote, restored her to normal condition. The Louisiana State Penitentiary wrote, quote, Examination by medical experts disclosed the fact that she was a pervert she was given a life term in the penitentiary, and when brought to Baton Rouge, she was subjected to another examination. Prison surgeons performed an operation that restored her to normal condition. She has been at the women's camp at Angola several years and has caused absolutely no trouble. Lobotomies would not be performed for another 10 years in the United States. The procedure used to, quote, cure Clementine is unknown. In 1923, Clementine Barnabet was released. Six years later, the Axeman of New Orleans murders began. This has been Murder Minute. For True Crime Anytime, download the Murder Minute app 
or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Stereo at Murder Minute.